0: Episode 141 French efforts in Antarctica after World War II. I'm at Pelican Point, one of my childhood snorkeling spots. I used to come here a lot through high school with my friend Tim Glover. I bring my children here now, but I haven't seen Tim in seven years. Tim, if you're out there listening, please get in touch. French prologue. Le prologue. I guess that'd be. Lying 1,800 nautical miles south of Madagascar, the Desolation Isles live up to their name. Though that's not their charted name, which is the Kerguelen Islands, after the French mariner who sailed in the region in the 18th century. Unless Kerguelen comprised a series of jagged igneous knolls surrounded by tempestuous seas, the Desolation Isles comprises the more fitting label. But I don't get to decide what names go where on maps and charts, more as a pity. In some cases being far away from every other landmass extending above the high tide makes an island desirable real estate, but even a dearth of other things to stand on for several thousand nautical miles fails to make the Kerguelens a territorial conflict flashpoint or a holiday destination for anyone other than really dedicated bird spotters. Besides discovering the islands, French interests kicked off a coal mining enterprise, which failed, a sheep station, which failed, and in conjunction with Norwegian interests, two shore-based whaling operations, both of which kicked off in 1908, one shutting up shop in 1911, and the other remaining occupied, though not operational, until 1931, as part of a second unsuccessful attempt to establish a self-sustaining sheep population, which failed. An elephant sealing operation carried on most summers at Port Jean d'Arc, between 1919 and 1929, at which point those involved upped stumps to go put the herd on seals on Herd Island. Cold, windy, impossible to farm and very far away from everything and everyone not carrying out French territorial administration in the Southern Ocean, the Eels de la Desolation remains the better name until such time as people start using Kerguelen as a synonym for melancholic sterility. In 1938 Largely in response to the Nazi FAT plan expedition heading south under Richer, France fixed the boundaries of Terra Adélie, as that space lying between 136 and 142 degrees east, south of the 60 degree parallel. The Kerguelens at 49 degrees south, lie outside those bounds, so the oceanographic research vessel Bougainville visited the islands in 1939 to make a show of administration where occupation still lay out of financial and political reach running a hydrographic survey and putting parties of biologists ashore. Meanwhile, Swiss French ethnologist, engineer and pilot Paul-Emile Victor made his first foray into polar realms in Greenland in 1934. He and three companions sailed north in company with Jean-Baptiste Charcot aboard the Porcois-Pas, which dropped them on the coast of the Angmasillic district to conduct the first ethnological study of the local population taking up the next 12 months. In 1936 Paul-Emile Victor returned to Greenland leading a party of four in a successful dog sledge traverse of the Greenland dome. During their 49 day trek the three Danes and one Frenchman mapped out their future plans for research on the Greenland dome. Charco also carried this team north dropping them ashore from the Pourquoi pas shortly before the ship wrecked off the coast of Iceland, leading to the death of all but one crew member. See episode 32. Paul-Emile Victor served in the French Navy until the fall of France saw that service transfer its allegiance to the Nazi collaborators in the Vichy government. He extricated himself from occupied France and joined the United States Army Air Force as a polar training technical advisor and a paratrooper, creating survival and search and rescue programs, to support American efforts ferrying aircraft to the European theatre via Greenland and to the Soviet Union via Alaska. The American citizenship this military service earned him later aided in negotiating United States naval logistical support for French polar projects. Paul-Emile Victor founded the Expeditions Polares Francaises in 1947 as an umbrella body for coordinating French efforts at high latitudes, remaining its head until 1976. Paul-Émile Victor pushed the line that besides valuable scientific insights, successful French projects in the polar regions offered national prestige France urgently needed in the wake of the war. His efforts to reinvigorate French interest in polar exploration, comprising over 1,500 visits to politicians and civil servants over the course of two years, highlighting occupation and administration as increasingly necessary to maintain sovereignty over claimed territories, received a lot of pushback from the conservative post-war government its attention focused on repairing the damage done to the nation's infrastructure and economy by half a decade of conflict and occupation. By his tenacity, his energy, and, as many contemporaries note, his charm, he eventually won through, making Paul-Emile Victor almost single-handedly responsible for the scale and nature of the French presence in Antarctica through the second half of the 20th century. On the 27th of February, 1947, the French government agreed to back expeditions to both Greenland and Antarctica in the following year. The expeditions Polaires Françaises received the patronage of President Vincent Auriol and 45 million francs to, to carry out the newly mandated expeditions. While PEV led a 3-month reconnaissance to Greenland to find suitable landing sites for a proposed 3-year expedition in the north, André Frank Leotard to head south as an observer aboard Falkland Islands Dependency Survey voyages to gain some insight into what did and did not work for the Brits in establishing their bases around the Antarctic Peninsula. France's newly instituted Polar Science program coalesced under the Commission Scientifique des Expeditions Polaires led by Jesuit geophysicist Father Pierre Leger, later head of France's IGY program. March light. Funding arose from the Ministry for Education, the Ministry for Defence, and private donations. (laughs) Private donations to end my donut privations. The Ministry of Colonial Affairs arranged the purchase of a war surplus United States Navy ship, the Wooden Hulled Netlayer Alpha November 4-8 USS Lancewood, sister ship to the port of Beaumont used in the Ronnie Antarctic Research Expedition. The ship received strengthening at the stem and stern in its refit for polar voyaging and the name Commandant Charcot, after France's recently deceased maritime hero. In August 1948, a parliamentary decree appointed French expedition leaders as French government representatives in Terra Adélie, offering official government presence sufficient to fulfil Hughes Doctrine administrative obligations. Sled dogs arose from Labrador and Greenland stock, the disparate origins hopefully offering enough genetic diversity to stave off the worst vagaries of inbreeding for several generations. Engine trouble aboard the Commandant Charcot prevented the slated September 1948 departure from Brest. It wasn't until the 26th of November, the ship departed on its first Antarctic foray, carrying an expedition party of 12 under the leadership of andre Frank Leotard. Charged with a reconnaissance mission on the Terra Adelie coast to identify a suitable site for a permanent French presence in Antarctica, with a secondary mission comprising a limited scientific program, arriving at the pack ice edge on the 11th of February, the commandant Charcot was too late in the Austral summer to make any close approach to the continent. The expedition has turned north after two weeks steaming along a 300-mile stretch of impenetrable pack making landings at the Balleny and Macquarie Islands for brief geologizing excursions. The Commandant Charcot made a port of call in Melbourne on its way north, where quarantine regulations forbade offloading the dogs. The local press made a fuss about the poor doggos stuck on the ship, and a special dispensation allowed the French to house their canines at the Royal Melbourne Zoo. The dogs stayed on there as an exhibit when the ship sailed for France. The Commandant Charcot sailed south again in 1949 earlier in the austral summer so as to offer a better chance of reaching the continental shore. andre Frank Leotard once more sailed as expedition leader, and the ship carried the materials and stores necessary to establish a wintering base. Given the scant material available to me, and the language barrier preventing me from making best possible use of what I have, it's difficult for me to be sure about the roles, but to my knowledge, the shore party under Leotard comprised 2nd-in-command Mario Marat, Meteorologist Henri Bourgeon Radio operator Rene Gross, Dr Jean Sapin-Yalustre as medico Photographer and dog driver Robert Pommier Engineer Yves Vallette And dog handler Georges Swartz I think François Tabateau ran the seismology program which would make him a physicist or earth scientist. And that leaves Maurice Harders and André Paget unaccounted for. I've yet to identify a geologist, a marine biologist and a cook in the party, but as people often filled several base roles in this era, it's possible I already overlooked candidates for those roles and these last two constituted additional radio operators, meteorologists or physicists. Initial expedition second in command, cinematographer J.A. Martin died on the way south though I can't find any information on the cause. His grave lies in Cape Town. The ship called at Melbourne once more, collecting its original complement of dogs, minus a few nursing mothers, these and their litters, serving as a gift to Inari, in gratitude for the zoo looking after them through the austral winter. The Inari moved these dogs to herd island on the next relief voyage, where the shore party bred them carefully and trained them into sledge work. This doggo depot, stocked voyages to continental Antarctica with excellent sled-hauling huskies for the remaining years of Australia's occupation at Heard Island. The French expedition made a continental landing on the 18th of January 1950 at a rocky site near Cape Margerie, named for the French geographer Emmanuel de Margerie by Mawson's Australasian Antarctic expedition. The party named the anchorage in which they anchored the Commandant Charcot, Port Martin, after their deceased predecessor. The shore party raised their prefabricated main hut, a ferrous-free magnetic hut, a Stevenson screen, a balloon tower, all the accoutrements of a mid-20th century Antarctic station you're accustomed to me banging on about. And the new base took on the name of the anchorage, becoming Port Martin. The French tricolore flew above the site for the first time, flapping out its subatomic French sovereignty particles on the 3rd of February. Leotard acting as head of government in Terra Adélie, opened a post office desk and cancelled the load of mail carried south explicitly for administrative credibility. All posts arising from his colleagues at Port Martin received special stamps commissioned for this new bastion of French mail services in the south. This mail headed north aboard the Commandant Charcot, which departed on the 10th of February. The site at Port Martin experiences similar weather to that at Commonwealth Bay, with regular catabatic blizzards coming to full force in a matter of minutes out of a clear blue sky. The Port Martin residents adapted to their new harsh environment, keeping indoors until the winds died down before heading out to finish construction and to erect their antenna array. While much of a meteorologist's duties at this point in Antarctic history comprise changing out the paper reels in automatic recording devices, The Stevenson screen still needed regular visiting. The party established a small windproof hut adjacent to the screen and ran phone lines between it and the main base building. This allowed the duty Met Observer to check the instruments in the screen and immediately thereafter get out of the wind and blown snow to report the data to someone in a warm room who wouldn't lose a few fingers for the sake of operating a notepad and pencil. Balloon tracking, on the other hand, requires at least two people in the great outdoors. But, as balloons only launch successfully in conditions one standard deviation further along the x-axis from the mean wind speeds at Port Martin, the meteorologists were spared the dangers involved in standing around a theodolite for tens of minutes, making and recording tracking observations during the worst conditions that that stretch of coast has to offer. Met OBS went north by radio relay, making their first stops in Australia and the Kerguelens. All hands shared base housekeeping duties, melting ice for water, gathering the next days coal and a buffer stash of coal for blizzards, tossing base garbage to lured, hunting and butchering seals to keep the dogs fed. Seven of the base dogs came from Fid's husky stock, along with a large and largely useless black labrador unit called aspirin that the Brits threw in for good luck, though they didn't mention whose. The French initiated a cutting edge scientific program running to magnetic and meteorological measurements, biological and geological assays, ionospheric sounding, atmospheric optics, and geodesy. I've mentioned geodesy in passing in the past, but the accurate modelling of the shape of the Earth, and measurement of its orientation in space, and an understanding of the strength and shape of its gravitational field, really ramped up in the second half of the 20th century, as our ability to measure the necessary parameters with precision and accuracy began to match the extremely demanding prerequisites of that field. It sounds simple to anyone who's watched a ship disappear over the horizon, or watched lunar eclipses, or seen Mars in retrograde, because the Earth's a sphere. But it's not a perfect sphere, and mapping or navigating over a surface requires a precise understanding of the shape of that surface. The more accurate you want to make your model, or the more precisely you want to navigate the space it represents, the better you need to understand its shape. The centripetal forces generated by our mostly liquid planet's spin cause it to bulge at the equator and flatten near the poles. Our continents ride the same tides as our seas. The difference between mean high and low at spring tide is less obvious in a landmass than that exhibited by the mean high and low on show in the seas at NEEP, but geodetic earth scientists measure that difference into ever more granular models of the planet that spawned them. Geodesy is important to Earth scientists from first principles, and to nations in terms of defining and defending the boundaries of national resources. Now that almost everyone's using global positioning systems to find their way around, accurate and precise geodetic models are more important at a personal level than at any previous point in history. The signals our navigational receivers permute into directions telling you to turn left in 300 metres and your destination will be on the left only make sense if the underlying geodetic assumptions resolve to a mathematically coherent picture of the ground they represent. I only have the vaguest understanding of how it all works, and even then, it's the most astounding thing I can think humanity ever pulled off. And everyone's walking around with the end product in their pocket, as though it's not a greater miracle than anything recounted in any holy book representing a more finessed understanding of what's going on around us than any cleric ever claimed for their deity. I digress a lot, but people taking scientific understanding garnered over centuries by patient people making incremental discoveries for granted stands as a clanging leitmotif motif in the past couple of years and this seemed a good opportunity to remind people that we're standing on the shoulders of giants and that we should take care not to fall off. Thank a geodeticist when you get the opportunity. Anywho, field parties heading out to run explosive seismographic lines and to survey and geologise any rocky outcroppings they encountered ran their dogs on a fan-trace array hauling modified Nansen sledges. Sledging rations comprised tinned pemmican, though carried frozen and with the tins removed to save weight, crusty gallic hardtack, chocolate, vitamin supplements and a daily ration of galois or jetans. Meanwhile, in December 1949, the still reluctant French Parliament voted an additional 20 million francs to fund an expedition to the Kerguelen and the Crozes to establish French dominion. I mean, to establish a meteorological station and a runway on the largest island among the Ile de la Desolation, La Grande Terre. A key plank in the reasoning justifying the outlay was the dearth of meteorological stations in the southern Indian Ocean leaving a sizeable gap in the forecasting capacity of a world in which air travel became an increasingly important mode. New Amsterdam and the Kerguelens offered sound footings for both meteorological stations and for French citizens to occupy and administer the local landscape. While there, the Kerguelen contingent might also examine scope to reopen the sealing industry, the islands having made a lot of money for French interests in the past. Project leader Pierre Sicard Joined the Free French Air Force during the war, becoming a major commanding a French squadron of the new British elite fighting force, the Special Air Service. He served in the liberation of Brittany and lost an eye while leading paratroopers behind enemy lines in the Netherlands, receiving the Distinguished Service Order Medal for his efforts. Sikard brought to Antarctic latitudes a similar frontline military pedigree to that of John Tonkin among the FIDs. I already mentioned Albert Delarue in episode tum tum about the Banzari. The Swiss-born geologist and geographer made several surveying and geologising visits to the Kerguelen in the 1920s and 1930s, leading to his development of the first accurate maps of the main islands. Expeditions Polaires Francais sought his expertise as geologist and scientific advisor for the new French presence in the islands, and he agreed to go along on the proviso that his wife, Andre, be allowed to travel and live with him during the expedition. Sicard selected the site for the meteorological station that formed the basis of what is now Port-au-Francais, based on its relative shelter from the worst of the terrible weather La Grande Terre experiences, and on the nearby flat expanse his team surveyed as suitable for a runway, though no runway ever arose. On arrival, Delarue noted the Kergil and Cabbage, a brassica unique to there, the Crozets, Heard Island and Prince Edward Island. Ran to local extinction on all the islands on which rabbits flourished. The rabbits, originally introduced as a protein source for whalers and sealers and shipwreck victims, absent any predators, bred up to the point of population collapse as the one local species of plant their gut digested readily crashed under the weight of their grazing. A wooden building, 150 feet long and 25 feet wide, housed the kitchen and dining hall, the recreation room, a library, a washroom and 20 private rooms. A second such building housed the hospital, administrative offices and small apartments comprising bedroom, office, kitchen and bathroom. A two-story building at the hub of the community housed the radios and meteorological station. Philod huts, prefabricated modular steel structures named after their architect, Ferdinand Philod, being the French equivalent of a Nissan or a concert hut served as military barracks and workshops. The small farm, a number of greenhouses, and a kitchen garden provided some variety and vitamins not available from the war surplus-tinned food making up much of the diet of the base's early years. Albert and André Delarue built themselves a shanty on the outskirts of base, offering them a quiet space in which to work, and some respite from the constant gossipy babble of the main compound. Buildings required constant maintenance, caulking wooden structures to keep wind and rain out, buttressing walls or roofs upset by strong winds, and near constant rewiring of the overhead electrical distribution network until after several years the entire system ran through conduit underground. The Port Ar Francais residents settled into their year-long vigil in the south. Lying north of the convergence, the temperature never dropped as low as that at Herder Island, 300 nautical miles further south. But this didn't make life easy, the temperature never got high either, and while living above freezing holds some advantages in terms of fresh water availability and frostbite being easy to dodge, any snow that did fall immediately turned to slush, adding multi-layered dankness to a landscape already receiving daily rain showers. In late February the Totten, a ship I haven't mentioned in the series to date but which will become a regular, called on its way north after swapping out Inari teams at Heard Island but beyond that, the French colonists couldn't expect visitors until the following summer. There's a gap in my literature at this point, so the narrative regarding the Kerguelens is going to jump about a bit. The doctor for the fourth winter at Port-au-Francais, André Migot, first tried to head south under Jean-Baptiste Charcot. He met his nation's most prominent Antarctic veteran while finishing his medical studies. Charcot agreed to carry the newly minted Doctor South as Medico for a third Antarctic foray then in the planning stages. The First World War threw these plans out, Charcot serving on Q-ships and Migo as an army medical officer throughout the war. As mentioned in episode 32, and earlier this episode, Sharko died in 1936 and never did return to Antarctica. Expedition's Polaire Francais tasked Migo with biological research as well as his medical duties. Migo likely got the slot because in addition to his medical qualifications, he spent several years working in marine science. He also spent a year in a Cistercian monastery, travelled extensively in Tibet, got caught trying to reach Lhasa, disguised as a 1L lama, and took his adventures in Tibetan Buddhism seriously to the point that he could speak and write the language a seriously interesting dude who wrote several books about his adventures, which are well worth the effort of finding and reading. Migo stocked up on equipment and consumables to make good on both taskings. Hospital attendant under Dr Migo, Father Menu, a Dominican cleric, knew nothing about hospitals and refused to take even a short course to elevate his skills above chaplain before sailing south, making him a form of self-loading ballast when the pair joined their vessel, the Vercors, which I can't find much information on. It's too long ago to have anything to do with the famous cable-laying vessel of that name. In addition to its normal complement of crew, the ship carried 60 Kerguelen personnel divided between scientists, technical staff, tradespeople and soldiers. It housed some sheep and pigs, chicken, geese and ducks to supplement the small base farm stock. The shallow roadstead off Port-à-Francais required the Vercors anchor up a mile and a half from shore. The base motor launch, Grosse Venteur, named after Kergeland's ship, and a small landing craft named Galapeton, a flatulent corruption of the name painted on its transom, Galaportain, because of its noisy exhaust, performed the ship-to-shore transfers. Migot's predecessor, tasked with inducting his replacement to the medical facilities, instead embarked on a lengthy discourse about the scandals and scurrilities of his fellow residents of the past year. The social situation among the previous winterers deteriorated to the point some pairs of newly minted nemesis only communicated by registered letter, adding further grist to the gossip mill. This fascination with gossip wasn't confined to the base doctor, but seemed to infect the entire community, causing concern among the newcomers that they too might become holed by obsessive curtain twitching in the coming months. Unloading the ship proved extremely hard, given the distances the motor vessels plied on each shuttle transit, and the difficult terrain on which the landed stores landed. Poor weather caused many delays, and it's understandable that once helicopters factored into French operations in the south, they took on a substantial share of the unload, which only increased as successive helicopter designs increased in payload over time. Even with this difficulty in mind, I think the French landed themselves the best of the sub Antarctic islands outside of South Georgia. No other islands boast such excellent shelter from the world circling winds and incredible storms that haunt those latitudes. So a little difficulty with the last mile and a half is small cheese compared to the nightmare landings I already recounted at Heard and Macquarie Islands. Each season, base staff made excursions into the Kerguelen hinterland to add to a triangulation survey of the land. In early 1954, the residents of Port-au-Francais completed work on the largest seismological station in the Southern Hemisphere. Requiring a solid footing on which to mount the relevant instruments, the facility at Port Molloy required the excavation of hundreds of tonnes of rock. The chosen site lay an hour-long boat ride from Port-au-Francais as another nod to dampening out seismological noise from the data, distancing the instruments from the vibrational hubbub of human occupation. And I'm going to leave this episode there so I can launch into the 1951 expedition of the Commandant Charcot fresh next episode. Take care and appreciate your coffee and furthermore I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Meersham should be given a big swerve. <music>